Acts Part 2 Witnesses for Christ Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples a promise and a charge. Acts 1.8 That ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The charge to be witnesses for Christ has been heeded by many in their efforts to share the gospel of Christ with others. That in doing so, they are being witnesses for Christ. Witnessing for Christ today is commonly practiced. After telling others how to receive Christ, one may share their own experience in accepting Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. This can be a tool used to help demonstrate to a prospective Christian the power of the gospel to transform one's life. New converts are often encouraged to also share the gospel with others. This could take the form of a personal testimony proclaiming how their lives were changed. For example, their testimony or their witness might describe their actions and attitudes before they accepted Christ, circumstances that surrounded their conversion, and changes that took place in their life after receiving Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The New Testament speaks of people being witnesses. In our text, ye shall be witnesses unto me, Acts 1.8. This passage is taken to mean that all Christians are to witness for Christ. Now the content of the witnessing. What was the apostles' witness for Christ? They bore witness of Christ's resurrection. Acts 1.22, Acts 2.32, Acts 3.15, Acts 5.30-32, then Acts 13.30-31. They also bore witness of his life. Acts chapter 10 verses 38 to 42. The Apostle Paul was a special witness. Acts 22, 14 to 15. Acts 26 verse 16 and 22. The focal point of the apostolic witness is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is the content of our witness? The content of our witness may be our testimony, which may include the account of one's own conversion. A personal testimony that describes a change in one's life. Our testimony should provide testimony concerning the resurrection of Jesus and his saving grace and power to save a soul from eternal hell. What are the preconditions for outreach? Number one, obedience. In verse 4, Jesus told his disciples to not depart from Jerusalem until the Spirit came. Acts 1 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith, Ye have heard of me. So obedience, obedience. Jesus gave them instruction. They obeyed it promptly, exactly, and without argument. So preconditions for outward outreach. Number one, obedience. Number two, prayer. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They were in prayer when the day of Pentecost dawned and the Spirit fell. They made prayer a top priority. They were all united in prayer. So we need obedience, we need prayer, and we need unity. Acts one fourteen and Acts two one stresses the togetherness of the disciples when the Spirit came. And today we can see the Spirit works best when there is unity and not where there is division and divisiveness. Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with all his brethren. 
These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So what could unite them? How could these vastly different people, different personalities, different backgrounds, different nationalities, different languages unite? What could be the source of unity among them? What could be that uniting force? Jesus. They united around Jesus. And then lastly, openness to the Holy Spirit. We had obedience, prayer, unity, and lastly, openness to the Holy Spirit as preconditions to outreach. Unless we are in a vibrant touch with the Holy Spirit, little of his character will be seen in us, and our impact will be negligible. I do not imagine the disciples awaiting the Holy Spirit before Pentecost knew quite what they were waiting for, but they were open to the Spirit. They did not doubt that in many ways the Holy Spirit would become real to them, influence them, and be felt by them. Is the Holy Spirit real to you? Does the Holy Spirit influence you? Can you feel the Holy Spirit's ministering in your life? Is the Holy Spirit real to us today? Jesus acknowledged that people would come to believe in him through the words of his apostles. As he mentioned in his prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. His apostles, or those that get saved into the future, will believe on him through their word. So as he mentioned in his prayer, Therefore he equipped them with infallible proofs and the power of the Spirit. We see that in Acts 1, 2-3 and verse 8. We all need to place our faith in the witness of Christ himself, that what he has given us, and in his word, by his specially chosen witnesses, the apostles, 1 John 1, 1-4. Just as important, have you heeded what they have proclaimed? Are you a witness for Christ today? Now, Acts 1, Nine. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. The Ascension of Christ, Acts 1.9 Forty days following his resurrection, Jesus ascended up into heaven. This was watched by his disciples until a cloud received him out of their sight. This took place near Bethany, while Jesus blessed them. Luke twenty four fifty to fifty one, and he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and blessed them, and it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Following his ascension to heaven, what happened next? What's happening now? Jesus' ministry as Lord and Savior did not end with his life here on earth. Important to our faith. And hope is understanding what happened after Jesus ascended to heaven, beginning with the exaltation of Christ, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. Despite efforts by rulers and kings against God's anointed, we see that in Psalm 2, 1-7, and you can cross-reference that with Acts 4, 23-28. The suffering servant was spoken of in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was seen in a vision by Daniel, Daniel 7.13. The psalmist and the prophets foretold that the Messiah would be 
exalted. The exaltation of Christ is also proclaimed in the New Testament. Jesus told disciples he was about to enter his glory, Luke 24, 25-27. He is now seated at the right hand of God, Mark 16, 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. He has been exalted to be Prince and Savior, Acts chapter 2, 33-35 and 5:31. He has been given a name above every name, Philippians 2, 9. He has obtained a more excellent name than the angels, Hebrews 1, 3-4. Jesus and his apostles proclaimed the exaltation of Christ in glory. So Jesus has been exalted in glory, but what is he doing at the right hand of God? Biding his time until his return? No. For there is much revealed about the reign of Christ, as prophesied in the Old Testament. To rule the nations with the rod of iron, Psalm 2, 8-12. To rule in the midst of his enemies, till they are made his footstool, Psalm 110, 1-2-5-7. To have a government of peace, judgment, and justice, Isaiah 9, 6-7. That all peoples, nations, languages should serve him, Daniel seven fourteen. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The psalmists and the prophets foretold that the Messiah would reign over his enemies. Now, his reign as proclaimed in the New Testament Jesus has all authority. In heaven and on earth, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, he is above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name, Ephesians one twenty to twenty-two. Angels, authorities, and powers have been made subject to him, First Peter three twenty-two. He must reign until all enemies are put under his feet, including death, First Corinthians fifteen twenty-four to twenty-six. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth, Revelation one five. He rules them with a rod of iron, Revelation 2, 26-27. Thus he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14, 1 Timothy 6, 14-15. Jesus and his apostles proclaimed the present reign of Christ from heaven. Just as God reigned over the kingdoms of men, Daniel 2, 21 and 4, 17, so now his son reigns in the midst of his enemies, Psalm 110, 1-2. Until the last enemy is defeated, that is death. And in the meantime, there is also the priesthood of Christ. As prophesied in the Old Testament, to serve as a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, Psalms 110.4, to be a priest on his throne, Zechariah 6.13. The psalmist and the prophet foretold of one who would be both king and priest. As proclaimed in the New Testament, Jesus has become a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews chapter 2, 17-18 He's high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people, to aid those who are tempted. He is a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, 14-16 Sympathizing with our weaknesses, as he has been tempted, making it possible to obtain mercy and grace and help in time of need, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5:10, Hebrews 6:19 to 20, Hebrews 7:20 to 28, Hebrews 8:1. He is called by God in the presence of God beyond the veil 
made a priest by the oath of God, the surety of a better covenant, an unchangeable priesthood because he continues forever, able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, who always lives to make intercession for them, a high priest, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens, does not need to offer daily sacrifices, his own sacrifice offered once suffices. He is a better high priest. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 8, 1 to 2, Hebrews 9, 11 to 15, Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. He is seated at the right hand of God, minister of the sanctuary and true tabernacle erected by the Lord, not man, having obtained eternal, eternal redemption, even for those under the first covenant, offering the promise of eternal inheritance, sitting at the right hand of God, tells enemies are made his footstool. By one offering, eternal forgiveness of sins is available to all, giving us boldness to draw near to God with assurance of faith. Jesus is truly the perfect and better high priest for us in heaven. Thus, we have seen what the ascension of Jesus means. He was highly exalted above all things in heaven and earth. He began his reign as king and ministry as high priest. Thus we have nothing to fear and everything to hope for. Romans chapter 8, 31 to 38. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that who justifieth. Who is he that com condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus will one day return, and tell then, what will you do? Freely volunteer the day of his power, Psalm 110.3. Submit to his kingly authority as Lord. Obey the gospel, Acts 2.36-38. Enjoy the blessings with him as your high priest in heaven, 1 John 1, 7-9. If we do not accept him as Savior, or have not accepted him as Savior, then as his enemy we will eventually be crushed under his feet and experience his wrath for having despised God's grace when we had ample opportunity to accept it. Now let's examine the selection of Matthias. There has always been a question about what happened in this passage of Scripture. Should the Apostle Peter had led them to hold this selection for replacement for Judas Iscariot? Many think he should have, and many also think he should have not. The Quest Acts one twenty one to twenty three. Whereof of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, 
must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. These are commentator John Phillips' thoughts on this. Considerable difference of opinion centers on this action. Some think the apostles were wrong on this matter, yet they should have waited until after Pentecost for the Spirit's mind on this matter. Yet because the man they now chose as substitute for Judas is never heard of again, he could not have been the Holy Spirit's choice, and that God had already chosen Paul to fill out the ranks of the apostolate. Others are equally sure that they did the right thing. The casting of lots was a valid Old Testament procedure, and that this was the last act of the Old Dispensation. Certainly the disciples felt strongly that the missing seat should be filled before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now these are J. Vern McGee's thoughts on the selection of Matthias. He said, I believe that the election to choose a successor to Judas Iscariot was conducted by Peter without the presence and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Matthias was evidently a good man. He met the requirements of an apostle, which meant he must have seen the resurrected Christ, as that was a necessary requirement. I can't see that this was the leading of the Holy Spirit, nor that it was God's leading in the casting of lots. So now let's examine the quandary. Acts 1, 24-26 And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. John Phillips made the following observation. All too often we make our own plans, pursue them to the best of our knowledge and ability, run into a quandary, and then ask God to bless what we have done, and show us how to get out of the corner into which we have painted ourselves. Is that what Peter and the others had done here? Maybe so. But on the other hand, the whole band of disciples had been continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication for days. So perhaps the whole thing was of God after all. J. Vernon McGee further stated this about the selection of Matthias. Is Matthias actually the one who took the place of Judas? I don't think so. I believe that in his own time, the Lord Jesus himself appointed one to take the place of Judas Iscariot. It is my conviction that the man the Lord chose was Paul. You may ask me, do you have authority for that statement? Yes, listen to Paul as he writes to the Galatian believers. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, Galatians 1, 1. We'll end this section with a quote from Warren Wearsby about this issue, who has a much different opinion. He said, Paul was not meant to be the twelfth apostle. Peter and the other believers were in the will of God when they selected Matthias, and God gave his endorsement to Matthias by empowering him with the same spirit that was given to the other men whom Jesus had personally selected, Acts 2, 1-4, and verse 14. Now, I don't think that we will truly know how to answer the debate of this passage of Scripture, whether Matthias should have been selected with the twelve or not, until we all get to heaven. And then, I truly think it will not even matter. So we'll close out this section on Acts with another quote from 
30 years that changed the world. The author said in the book, I do want to awaken us to what these very ordinary men and women achieved within a single generation. It could encourage us to make a similar attempt in our own day. That, after all, is why the Acts was written. Luke wrote his gospel to show what Jesus began to do and to teach when he was on earth. He wrote Acts to show what Jesus continued to do and teach after his resurrection. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit and a handful of dedicated people whose message became irresistible. God is still engaged in this dynamic enterprise. He has not given up on us. That is why the study of Acts remains so important. If those first Christians could accomplish so much in so short a space of time, with such skimpy resources, what might the worldwide church today accomplish if only it was prepared for the vision, the faith, and the dedication they exhibited? What if we marched out into the world and tried to take it by storm and turn the world upside down with simply the Spirit? That's what they had. They prayed, and the Spirit came. We have the Spirit. The Spirit has come. The Spirit resides within us if we are saved. We need to go out and take the world and turn it upside down, just like they did. If they did it with the Spirit, we could do it with the Spirit.